I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine scripture by following the patterns and symbols that are laid out for us in the pages of scripture. This week we're in Genesis 40. Genesis 40 is one of those chapters that is very difficult to nail down. It explores a lot of topics that are not explicitly stated in the text, and it creates a muddled mess on some levels. There's so many threads to pull that choosing one over another is difficult. So before we get there, let's track Joseph's path up to now and see if setting a few starting points in the past can help us to extrapolate through this chapter and into the future. So let's recap. Joseph was born as the eleventh son of Jacob, but the first son of Jacob's favored wife, Rachel. In this position, Joseph was granted the highest honor of Jacob's sons. This position was first signified through a garment. This position was then confirmed in a few dreams that Joseph had. And this gives us a parallel to this chapter. Two dreams. Both dreams involved being raised to a place of honor. Now, the brothers obviously don't like this arrangement, and so they decide to be rid of this constant reminder of their own lack of status. And so Joseph is captured and he's sold off into slavery. The honor that Joseph once had in the world was brought low. Those looking in from the outside might have thought that Joseph had fallen from the favor of God, that this shame was somehow God's way of punishing Joseph for a slight or an offense. But let us never forget the lessons of Job and Deuteronomy 8. Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 3, it says, And you shall remember that Hashem, your Elohim, led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you, to prove you, to know what is in your heart, whether you will guard his commands or not. And he humbled you, and he let you suffer hunger, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, to make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of Hashem. We read here that God causes hardship in the lives of his people as a way of training trust and faith into us. He humbles, not as punishment, but as a test, a trial, a furnace that refines and strengthens. And this is the process that we see happening in Joseph's life. In this slavery, Joseph is bought by a man with power in Egypt, and in Potiphar's house, Joseph is blessed by Hashem and is caused to be successful in all that he does. And in the success, Joseph gains back a measure of his honor from before. But then he's accused of an offense, and suddenly Joseph is brought even lower than he had been before. Now, he is not only a slave, but prisoner, the lowest of the low, the dregs of society. And once Joseph had a vision of greatness, 
he was shown by God that he would be raised up above all others, including even his own father. But now, now he's in a cage, in a gutter, in a foreign land, and powerless. But even here, Joseph is faithful, and God blesses him. He is made the king of the rats in this new place, the greatest of the shamed. He has become the greatest among the shamed. And this is where we find Joseph, this man who was once promised greatness by God is now nothing more than the greatest of the dregs of society. And into this low place, two new people are introduced. And into this low place, two new dreams are given. And these two dreams are very specific to the people who dream them. And yet there's so much contained in these dreams that we can learn. So let's read this chapter and then see what all we can pull from it. In Genesis 40. And after these events it came to be that the cupbearer and the baker of the sovereign of Mitzrayim sinned against their master, the sovereign of Mitzrayim. And Pharaoh was wroth with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison, the place where Yosef was prisoner. And the captain of the guard put Yosef in charge of them, and he served them, so they were in confinement for some time. Then the cupbearer and the baker of the sovereign of Mitzrayim, who were confined in the prison, dreamed a dream, both of them, each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Yosef came in to them in the morning, and looked at them, and saw that they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in confinement of his master's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, we have each dreamed a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. And Yosef said to them, Do not interpretations belong to Elohim? Relate them to me, please. So the chief cupbearer related his dream to Yosef and said to him, See, in my dream a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches, and it was as though it budded. Its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Yet within three days Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you shall put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former ruling, when you were his cupbearer. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show loving commitment to me, and mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For truly I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done not that they should put me into the dungeon. And the chief cupbearer saw that the interpretation was good, and said to Yosef, I also was in my dream, and saw three white baskets were on my head, and in the uppermost basket all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. And Yosef answered and said, This is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Yet within three days Pharaoh is going to lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds shall eat your flesh from you. And on the third day of Pharaoh's birthday, it came to be that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and of the chief baker among his servants, and restored the chief cupbearer to his post of cupbearer again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Yosef had interpreted to them. And the chief cupbearer did not remember Yosef, but forgot him. As this chapter opens, we find that two men who served the king had sinned against him in some way, and so they are thrown into prison. Which prison, though? Well, it's the prison of the house of the captain of the guard. 
Now, this phrase is the same one that's used to describe Potiphar in the last chapter. This prison is described as the dwelling of the prince of the Tabach. Uh, Tabach is a Hebrew word that means executioner, cook, the one who kills the animals, uh, bodyguard, or guardsman. It is in this place that the captain of the guard put these two men with honor into the care of Joseph, the slave. Now, from this, we can extrapolate that Joseph was still in Potiphar's house. Now, I've heard it suggested that Potiphar knew that Joseph was innocent, and that is his motivation for keeping Joseph alive, for not killing him for attempted rape, which wouldn't make sense. But I find it as equally possible that Potiphar simply didn't want to kill that proverbial goose that laid the golden eggs. He didn't want to lose the benefit that Joseph was giving him. Simply shuffle him aside for a time, and then after a while, when things have died down, we can find a way to make use of him again. Until then, keep him safely hidden away from the world as another proverbial ace in the hole to be exploited when needed. I'm not sure that this teaches us anything, but it was an interesting thought that I had on the possible motivations for Potiphar that I've never heard mentioned before. So, into Joseph's world of criminals and thieves, these two men of honor and station are introduced, and they're placed directly into his care. And they're there for some time before they each have a dream in a single night. Now, one thing that we need to realize is that the dream of each individual is steeped in a symbol that they can identify with. Earlier in Joseph's life, his dreams were steeped in the symbols of sheaves of wheat, and then later in his second dream, the symbols become the sun, moon, and stars. Both are things that Joseph would be intimately familiar with. For the cupbearer, his dream is steeped in the realm of grapes and vines. And for the baker, the dream is steeped in the symbols of baskets full of baked goods. This is a feature of visions and dreams that we must not overlook. The specifics of a vision or a dream are not important. And they, they mean something only to the person who's having the vision. So let's look at a few other examples of dreams that are steeped in symbol and that is easily identifiable by the recipient of the vision. In Daniel 2, we read the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and in his dream a statue is set up and the statue is made of various materials. The statue itself is a symbol that was unique to the person of Nebuchadnezzar. And what does he do in the very next chapter? He sets up a statue of himself and has everybody bow down and worship it. In Acts 10, Peter has a vision while standing on the roof of Simon the Tanner. Then the text specifically states in Acts 10.10 that Peter became hungry and desired to eat. Then before he gets a chance to actually eat, a vision comes in which animals are present and a command is given to take and eat. Now if we don't understand the specifics of a vision are only there as a setting, they're not part of the message, but rather the symbol through which the meaning of the message or the vision of the dream is communicated. Then we can take these visions as literal and completely lose track of their meaning. For example, people have taken Peter's vision and have for centuries made it about what is acceptable to eat, even though the text clearly states later on in Acts chapter 10 that the vision had nothing to do with food. It was the setting. Well, why is this important? Well, Numbers 12, 6 through 8 says, And he said, Hear now my words. If your prophet is of Hashem, I make myself known to him in a vision, and I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moshe. He is trustworthy in all my house. I speak with him mouth to mouth and plainly. 
and not in riddles. And he sees the form of Hashem. So why are you not afraid to speak against my servant, Moshe? Visions and dreams are riddles that God gives to his people. They're parables, if you will. And it is in this method that God speaks to those who are his prophets, to those to whom God reveals what he is doing. Now, the specific setting of the vision or the dream is something that you provide. Your life circumstances provide that. What occurs with that setting is what God provides. Now, the symbols that are presented in the vision, they're just that. They're symbols. They're the setting that you provide from your own experience for the riddle that God is setting forth. And it is the riddle that occurs within the setting. That is the message. Now, in visions, we must look to what it is that God is affirming and not get caught up in the specific symbols. Uh, the exact same thing applies when it comes to the parables that Yeshua taught. They themselves, they're riddles in which society provided the symbols, and which Yeshua then crafted into a riddle or a puzzle about the kingdom of God. Uh, many of the parables that Yeshua taught were parables that were already being told in Jewish society. And Yeshua took those common stories Every time he morphed that story into something that taught about the kingdom of God, flipped it on its head in some way. And when we recognize that this is how God works and speaks to humans, I think that we're given a key to unlocking scripture itself. When we don't focus so much on the specifics of the settings and the symbols, but rather through proper context and application, we discern the riddle of scripture and discover the truth that is just beneath the surface. And that's what we've been doing all along. So why does God do this? Well, if we look to Scripture, it's so that those who are not his, they don't truly hear or understand what's being said. Matthew 13, 12 through 13 says, For whoever possesses to him more shall be given, and he shall have overflowingly. But whoever does not possess, even what he possesses shall be taken away from him. Because of this, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And that leads us back to this chapter into a vital truth that we must recognize. It's God who provides an accurate translation of these riddles. Now we can see and hear scripture our whole lives and never discern a bit of it accurately. And then in a moment of clarity, God provides an interpretation for something, and it just clicks into place. This doesn't originate with any person, but rather it originates with God. And Joseph uses exactly this language when he's speaking to the two other prisoners. Does not interpretations belong to God? And in the next chapter, when Joseph is brought before Pharaoh, Joseph uses the same language. It is not within me to interpret your dream. Let God answer Pharaoh and give the interpretation. Daniel says the exact same thing while he's in exile in Babylon. We'll get into that more next week. Just as is true with any gift that we have, it's God who does the working, not us. We're simply conduit for his power, and we're not even, we're not even truly necessary for him to work. The fact that he chooses to use us as tools for his mighty power is a thought that is too great to properly contemplate. The fact that we do have power within ourselves, but that power is the serpent's call and it has limits. But his power has no limits, and his power is all power. 
we cannot limit God by claiming to be special or claiming that any power that is granted is our power. And Moses made this mistake when he says, shall we bring the water from the rock for you? He made himself into the one with power, and he forgot that lesson of Deuteronomy 8. God humbled you to reveal that it is him that is the source of all things. Continue in that humility. So that's simply one thing that the chapter teaches us, how to operate in the context of visions, dreams, parables, and I would contend even scripture itself. But let's change gears here for a moment and look at the symbols provided in this chapter, because awesomely enough, passages such as these, they can provide many layers of meaning within the text. Now, who is familiar with the movie Inception? Right, The movie is about a spy team that steals secrets by entering into the dreams of others. And one of the twists of the movie is that people who are dreaming, they can dream within their dreams in order to access a deeper part of the subconscious. And that becomes a major plot point in the narrative. Why do I bring this up? Well, this chapter and others like it can provide symbols within symbols that all have meaning. It is the inception of scripture with multiple layers of meaning that can assist us in learning more about the entirety of scripture. And in this chapter, we've already looked at the concept of God-given visions and dreams and the symbols that they provide. And I stated that scripture itself works in this way. And awesomely enough, this chapter provides an example of this at work. So who is it that's jailed in the prison in this chapter? It's the king's cupbearer and baker. Or these two characters, they act as symbols that are as old as time and that many congregations recognize each and every week in one capacity or another. The bread and the cup. And they're symbols that appear all throughout scripture. Perhaps the most well-known is the cup and the bread that was shared at the Last Supper. But these symbols, they exist as symbols of import long before Yeshua. All the way back in Genesis 14, we read of a king, a righteous king who meets Abraham on his way back from a great victory. And upon meeting Abraham, the king gives Abraham two things, bread and wine. Genesis 14, 18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was the priest of the Most High God. Now, these symbols are something that I brought up many months ago when we went through Genesis 14, but at the time, I simply mentioned that they were important, but I didn't stop and really examine them. So let's do that now. But throughout scripture, bread and wine, they are symbols of blessings. Lamentation 2.12 says, Say to their mothers, Where is grain and wine? As they languish like the wounded in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out in their mother's bosom. Psalm 104, 14 through 50 says, causing the grass to grow for the cattle and plants for the service of mankind to bring forth fruit from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread which sustains man's heart. And in 2 Kings, when Sennacherib approaches Jerusalem and speaks to the people to convince them to open their gates and relieve the siege, what does he promise? In 2 Kings 18, 31-33, says, Do not listen to Hezekiah, or Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present, and come out to me, and let each of you eat from his own vine, and each from his own fig tree, and each of you drink the waters of his own cistern until I come. Then I shall take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, and live and do not die. 
But do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying, Hashem shall deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations at all delivered its land from the hand of the king of Syria? And finally, for my purposes today, we see God use bread and wine later in a way that parallels Deuteronomy 8 passage that we read earlier. In Deuteronomy 29, 5-6, it says, And I have led you forty years in the wilderness. Your garments have not worn out on you, and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You ate no bread, and you drank no wine nor strong drink, so that you might know that I am Hashem, your God. Bread and Wine the symbols of provision and sustenance. So what does it mean that Pharaoh threw his representatives of these symbols in prison, that he sent them away? Could this perhaps be a foreshadowing of things to come? The bread and the wine, they're symbols of blessing and provision and sustenance, but they're also symbols that are more specific and yet different. And this is just one symbolic understanding of bread and wine. Yeshua, in the Last Supper, he gives us another symbol that we can learn from. Luke 22, 19 through 20, he says, And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The bread represents flesh, the body. The wine represents not blood, but the covenant that exists in the blood, a sacrifice. Now we read in Leviticus of all of the various sacrifices that are to be offered, both flesh and grain, all symbolic of the flesh being sacrificed. But it's not until Numbers that we read of the prescribed libation offerings. And in every offering that is described in Leviticus, there is a libation, a wine offering, that is to accompany that sacrifice. Now, it's common to say that in Scripture, wine represents the Spirit of God. But I, as I examined the occurrences of the symbol of wine this week, I found that's not necessarily true. Isaiah 55, 1 says, Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no silver, come and eat and buy. Come buy wine and milk and silver without price. Hosea 9, 2 through 4 says, The threshing floor and the winepress shall not feed them, and the noon wine shall fail in her. They shall not dwell in the land of Hashem, but Ephraim shall return to Mitzrayim and eat unclean food in Assyria. They do not pour out wine offerings to Hashem, nor are they pleasing to him. Their sacrifices are like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it are defiled, for their bread is for their beings. It does not come into the house of Hashem. And one of these is a symbol of favor. The other is a symbol of disfavor. So wine is a symbol of favor, and not just favor, though. Let's look at a few more passages and see if we can define the symbol a little bit better. Jeremiah 48, 32-33 says, O vine of Sibna, I weep for you with the weeping of Yazer. Your branches have passed over the sea, and they have come to the sea of Yazer. A ravager has fallen on your summer fruit and your grape harvest. Joy and gladness have been taken away from the orchard and from the land of Moab, and I have made the wine to cease from the wine presses. No one treads with shouting. The shouting is no shouting. Revelation 6, 6 says, And I heard the voice in the midst of the living creature saying, A measure of wheat for a denarius, and three measures of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. 
Hosea 14, 7. Those who dwell under the shadow shall return. They shall revive like grain and blossom like the vine and become as fragrant as the wine of Lebanon. Now, if we examine all of these passages and a couple dozen others that use wine as a symbol, we can more clearly define wine as a symbol of love, commitment, or perhaps chesed. Now, as I mentioned last week, chesed is in my mind best interpreted by the phrase action which demonstrates loyalty to covenant. Chesed is itself a covenant word, and wine is a symbol of blessing that is given to those in covenant, or taken away when one is out of covenant as a punishment. Wine isn't necessarily a symbol of spirit. Wine seems to be a symbol of chesed, a symbol of covenant loyalty. So we're given in this chapter the symbols of the flesh and the covenant, both raised up, one slated for death and the other raised up to serve the king. Now, there are a lot of applications of this if we sit and we truly ponder the implications. So first, let's look back a little bit. The last two chapters, they provide us with that contrast of Judah and Joseph that we talked about last week. We have Judah, perhaps as the bread, the flesh that betrayed covenant and was forced to uphold his end of the covenant through the deception of another. Joseph, perhaps the wine, the one loyal to the covenant throughout his oppression, the one whom God honored with chesed in response when the world cast him out. The comparison doesn't end there either. I think that this can teach us a lot about our Messiah in his death. Because Yeshua told us himself that he was symbolized in both the bread and the wine. The flesh, that outward expression of that internal reality. And the blood, the life and the covenant that courses through a person. Yeshua, our Messiah, and the fullest expression of these symbols. In this story, the baker was raised up and crucified. The cupbearer was raised up and returned to service of the king. And it would only take three days for these symbols to be fully realized in this chapter. Three days until the truth was revealed. And that's what we see in the death and the resurrection of Yeshua. His flesh was raised up and hung on a tree, the bread. And it took three days for the truth to be realized and revealed for all to see. His covenant loyalty demonstrated through his resurrection as he was returned to life and brought back into service in the king's house. Both the bread and the wine were exemplified in this three-day processes. Three days in the grave, in the dungeon of the earth, the flesh going to death, the chesed, the covenant loyalty of both the father and the son creating the reality in which he could be raised to life and the greatest of honors. In my mind, that's a beautiful picture of our Messiah and the process that he embodied for us. Because as we think on these even further, we too must live these symbols out in our own lives. I mean, Paul speaks of this throughout his letters. Our flesh must be raised up and hung on a tree alongside our Messiah. And this must be done so that we can truly live our lives in loyalty to the covenant. Now, one thing that might confuse us on this point is that Paul steeps his comparison using the terms of flesh and in the spirit. So it would be simple to simply interject wine as the symbol of the spirit, but it's not. Oil is the symbol of the spirit, 
Wine is, as Yeshua says it is, it is that covenant that's present in his blood. His covenant loyalty, the action that he took to uphold the covenant that creates a path for the spirit to then take over in our lives. The wine, the covenant loyalty, that is him giving up his life so that we could have the possibility of living in the spirit. It is God's covenant loyalty, his chesed, that then bestows the Spirit upon us. The Spirit is the gift, but the chesed is the reason for the gift. So with this in mind, let's look at some of Paul's lessons on this and see if maybe we can discern them a little bit better. Romans 8, 9-13 through 13, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Messiah, this one is not his. And if Messiah is in you, the body is truly dead on account of sin. But the Spirit is life on account of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead shall also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit dwelling in you. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, not to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, the Spirit of life is given on account of righteousness. And as we discussed many, many weeks ago, righteousness is best defined in connection to covenant. Righteousness is not just right action. Without covenant, righteousness cannot exist. The Spirit is given to the people of God on account of righteousness, on account of God's own loyalty to his covenant. Now, with that in mind, let's read what Galatians has to say on this topic. Galatians 5, 16-26 And I say, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not accomplish the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other, so that you do not do what you desire to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the Torah. That phrase, under the Torah, it's an idiom that means under the penalty of the Torah. And the works of the flesh are well known, which are these. Adultery, whoring, uncleanness, indecency, idolatry, drug sorcery, hatred, quarrels, jealousies, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envies, murders, drunkenness, wild parties, and the like of which I forewarn you, even as I also said before, that those who practice such as these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. There's nothing here about keeping the Torah as being one of those works of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, trustworthiness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no Torah. And those who are of Messiah have impaled the flesh with its passions and the desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. The flesh is at war with the Spirit. The flesh is at war with our loyalty to the covenant of God. And Joseph just experienced this. Joseph is a man, and as a man, the desire of his flesh likely wanted to give in to Potiphar's wife, to gratify his own desires, to seize the symbol of his return to honor, to boast in his flesh that he was important once again, just as he did with his brothers. 
But Joseph has learned. He has no boast in the flesh. He has only his covenant, his loyalty to God. That's the only thing that he can trust, and it is the one thing that he must stay true to. And this is the lesson that we all need to learn. Our chesed, our loyalty to the covenants of God, must take precedence over all else. We have been given God's spirit because he has been faithful to his covenant with us. And through this, we are now equipped to respond in like kind in chesed. We're now equipped to stay loyal to his covenant in love and in truth. Our money, our job, our honor, our shame, persecutions, hardships, sufferings, pains, angers, offenses, and so many more. All of these must come second place to the covenant. Our loyalty to the covenant of the Father must guide our every thought, word, and action. It's in this that we'll find life, the only place that we can find life. And this is the fullness of these symbols. We ourselves, we have to take on the roles of the baker and the cupbearer. We must raise our flesh up unto death and raise our chesed up to the service of the king. And we do this. In my local congregation, we do this symbolically every week. We celebrate God's chesed toward us as we recognize that he is faithful to provide our sustenance. We lift juice and the bread and we bless him for his loyalty and his faithfulness. That action, the Kiddush, if you're in a Messianic style congregation, it's not unimportant. It's something that we recognize and we acknowledge. It's not simply a prayer of thanks for God's provision. Not simply. It is a prayer of lifting honor to our God and giving gratitude to him for his faithfulness to his covenant. You see, God made a covenant that he would continue to create the circumstances for life to flourish and grow on this earth. And he did so, not just to Israel, but to all mankind. In Genesis 8.22, it says, As long as the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. This symbol, a symbol is one that's been around for millennia. And it's theorized that the bread and the cup as symbols has been celebrated since Melchizedek first gave Abraham his first gift. And it's one that occurred in Jewish houses in Second Temple period daily or doubly or even quadruply on feast days. And it is this that Yeshua said we should use as the symbol by which to remember him. In the past, we've, in my congregation, we make it a point to make it clear that when we lift the bread and the cup, we're not partaking in communion. And it's true. We're not partaking in the sacrament of communion as it's been codified or become known in the church. Communion is its own thing in its own time. But that's not what Yeshua was thinking of when he declared that we should lift the cup and the bread in remembrance of him. I believe he was simply looking at the symbols that are present and celebrated in the people of God. The bread and the cup. The joyous celebration of God of life who has given us our flesh and our being. The one who remains eternally loyal to his covenant. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. 
And as often as we do these things, let us not forget the ultimate manifestation of these symbols in our lives. The one who took his flesh and willingly raised it up in obedience unto death. The one who was elevated through God's chesed to sit at his right hand in the heavens. Every opportunity should be used as an opportunity to remember our Messiah and what he has done for us. How much more should the bread and the cup be a pointer to the work that Messiah has done on our behalf? This chapter contains all sorts of levels of insight for us. The example of how dreams work is invaluable as it assists us in how to understand when God speaks directly to each one of us. The insight that this is how God steeps his message to his people is even more so. He speaks in visions and dreams and even parables, and he does so to provide riddles. The symbol of the cup, not as the blood of Messiah, but as his loyalty to the covenant of God, loyalty up to and including death, giving us our symbols to look towards. The symbols of complete obedience and loyalty. Because when we hold the cup, we're holding a very real fulfillment of God's own covenant loyalty to all mankind. The simple fact that we have the cup with the fruit of the vine in it demonstrates his loyalty. But the symbol of just what it is that our Messiah did is one of the greatest gifts that we have been given. Did Joseph understand these things? Did he understand the significance of the cupbearer and the baker? maybe yes and no he discerned that it was through the cupbearer that god's own chesed toward him would be accomplished he says when you get out tell them about me i'm being held here unjustly and so joseph did all that he could possibly do which was next to nothing he placed his own fate in this unknown man this man who had a reputation to rebuild and maintain and it took two years two more years for his release, for this man to remember to say anything about Joseph. Patience, patience, patience. True chesed requires patience. God may reveal things to you. He may show you a vision. He may reveal the means that he is going to use to get you out of a situation. And then years pass. And we begin to question, can God remain faithful? Will he remain faithful? Does he even care about me? Has he forgotten? Hey, God, I'm still here in prison, still at the lowest of the low. Where are you? Where is your deliverance? How long, oh God, until you deliver? And that is the most difficult part of chesed. Because living out chesed is something that takes every moment of every day. It's something that must continue in each one of our lives regardless of how long it takes for the deliverance of God to come to fruition. Remain in chesed, and he will remain with you. And chesed takes patience. It would have been all too easy for Joseph to take these dreams as a sign of immediate release and favor. But it took two more years, two long years in the dungeon, continuing to serve the lowest, remaining in humility. And that's where we're called to remain. 
that's where we're called to operate our lives. We must recognize that we are the lowest of the low, and our call is to serve the lowest of all, to teach them of God. Covenant, chesed, faithfulness, righteousness, these things, they're vital for us to remain in, and this is our calling. But above all, our calling is to serve the least, service to others, and then patience on God to deliver you and save you out from your situation, waiting on Him to bring you honor. It's in these things that we will find life as we engage in this effort of Dereshchai, of seeking life with all that is within us. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Dereshchai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Dereshchai, as we seek life. Shalom.